Amen. I hope you believe those truths. It'll change your life. And for those of us who do believe, that is life, isn't it? That's why we're here today, to celebrate who God is and all that he's done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And in seeking to know this God, seeking to understand who he is, what he's like, and to contemplate what it is that he's done for us, we turn this morning to the book of Exodus. Please open your Bibles this morning. As we continue our study through Exodus, I'd like to spend this morning's message looking at the structure of the tabernacle. As Moses went up on the mountain, God gave him some important instructions for how they were to worship him, instructions that would allow him to dwell among his people. We talked about that last week. And Exodus chapter 25 through 31 lays out the instructions for this tabernacle and everything that's in it. So we're going to read this morning Exodus chapter 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, and 31. Just kidding. Some of you thought we would. Um, But I do want you to have your Bibles open this morning because while we won't read every verse from these chapters, I do want you to be looking and seeing uh, the things that we will be identifying and pointing out along the way. But before we dive into the text, let's go ahead and pray and just ask God's blessing on our time in his word. Father, we come to you recognizing, as we've already rehearsed and sung this morning, that you are a glorious God. This is your world. You made it, and you made us. And we come before you this morning humbly as creatures who are dependent for every breath on your sustaining power and grace. And we've also sung this morning, Lord Jesus, of your mercy, the sacrifice you made on the cross so that we could behold the face of the Father, so that we could be brought near. Our sins are many, but because you are a merciful and gracious God who saves sinners, we can draw near to you this morning with expectation, with hope, with confidence that from you alone comes our salvation. Our hope is in you. So we ask for your blessing now as we look to your word. We pray that you would feed our faith, that you would nourish our souls, that you would fill our minds with truth, and stir our hearts towards worship and gratitude. We pray all this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. There are in Scripture two different scenes where mortal men catch a glimpse of the throne room of God. One's in Isaiah 6. The other is in Revelation chapter 8. So one's in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah. The other is in the New Testament, the apostle John. But they both see really the same thing. Isaiah records the words of the heavenly creatures who were crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The Apostle John similarly records the refrain in Revelation 4.8, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's what they saw when they looked into the throne room of God where his glory dwells. The hymn writer Reginald Heber put these words to music in the early 1800s. Many of you know the hymn, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, a triune hymn of praise to the God who is infinitely holy. So whether seeing God in a vision or learning about God in his word, when man considers who God is, The result is the same. We burst out in song that he is, above all things, holy. So what does it mean that God is holy? 
that's maybe church language to some of you. It's maybe even a pejorative. You would think of somebody's being, oh, that's a you know, holier than thou or holy roller or whatever it may be. What does it mean when we say God is holy? It means that God is utterly unique. He is distinct. He is different. And it speaks to his infinite worth, that he is precious and valuable beyond all compare to everything else in creation. There's no one like him. His holiness speaks of his excellence, his greatness, his glory. There's nothing to which we can compare God. He is completely other. He's in a class all by himself, perfectly pure, stunningly glorious, and therefore deserving of awe and reverence, worthy of the universe's worship and adoration. He is holy. So it's no wonder when we come to the book of Exodus that when God appears in a burning bush speaking to Moses, he says, take off your shoes because the place in which you're standing has now become holy ground because God has showed up there. When God dwells on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and displays the the beauty and the glory of his holiness, the mountain itself becomes holy. When God rescues a people, the nation Israel, and draws them into a covenant with himself. He calls them to be holy. They're to be a holy nation because their God is holy. And when he draws near to dwell with them in the tent, in the tabernacle, this special place is set apart as holy. It is unique. It is sacred. Last week, we introduced this idea of the tabernacle, that it is a place for God's presence. In Exodus 25, Verse 8, he tells Moses, let them make me a sanctuary, a holy place, a place that is set apart for one purpose and one purpose alone, that he may dwell in their midst. The good news for Israel was that the glory of God, the glory they had seen at Sinai was going to go with them. God would dwell among them. He would dwell in this tent, this sanctuary, this tabernacle. So this morning, what I'd like to do is look at the structure of the tabernacle itself and consider what it teaches us about the holiness of God and how it points us to the glorious work that he's accomplishing through his son, Jesus Christ. So the tabernacle, as we've mentioned, is this special tent. It is really a portable temple of sorts, the place where God would manifest his presence. And it's called specifically the tent of meeting. If you were to read all of these chapters, like I said we were going to and then didn't, um, you would find that 15 different times over these six chapters, we find this tent referred to as the tent of meeting. It's the tent of meeting, emphasizing that this is the place where God would connect with his people. This is the place where, where mortal man had access to the immortal and infinite God. This tent was to be made with special materials that were given willingly by the people. We see a listing of these materials in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 25. Different fabrics and yarns, different goat skins and and special wood and gold, silver, bronze. All of these materials that would be used for the construction of this tabernacle. And the tabernacle would be set up, it would be constructed in the middle of the camp. In the very center of the place where they were. The covenant community was to be a God-centered community. 
Even in the way they arranged their living quarters, everything faced and focused on this God, this holy God who'd come to dwell with them and make them his holy people. The tabernacle complex itself consisted, first of all, of an outer wall. We see the description of this courtyard in chapter 27. And within this courtyard, within this outer perimeter fence, there would be a smaller structure, which was the tent itself, the tabernacle. And the dimensions, as you read through uh, the tabernacle instructions, are typically measured out in cubits. And a cubit was basically around 18 inches. It was the average distance between the elbow and the tip of the finger for the average male. And so that's how they measured this out. And so if we sort of do the math and transfer this into feet, which might be a little easier for us to think about, uh, this outer wall, the, the perimeter exterior fence, as it were, for the temple complex, which was made out of white linen curtains, um, would have been about 150 feet long by 75 feet wide. And that, that would be the outer perimeter. And this outer curtain, this outer fence, would be seven and a half feet tall, which means if you're standing next to it, you can't really see in. So there's a separation here between God and between the people, between what is holy and what is less holy. This outer perimeter had one entrance. There's only one way in to the place where God's presence dwelled, about a 30-foot gate um, on the eastern uh, side of this courtyard. There's only, way, only, only one way to enter, and that was to face God. This gate would have faced, first of all, you would have seen at, at the far end of the tabernacle complex, you would have seen the tent itself, and then before that, you would have seen the altar and the wash basin. So the only way to enter is to face God and to approach him by way of the altar. This courtyard, if you were to enter into the gate, uh, contained a few things. It contained, as I mentioned, the altar for sacrifice and then the basin for ceremonial purification. And this courtyard was a place where the Israelites themselves could come. They could come into this gate to the place of God's dwelling. And there they would bring their sacrificial animals and they would offer them to the priests who would sacrifice those gifts on the altar. And there they would worship God. They would offer the burnt offering completely consumed on the altar to deal with sin. But there they could also offer the peace offering and they could eat in the presence of God. Remember, this is recapturing that moment that Moses and the elders got to experience as they ascended Mount Sinai and they ate and drank and beheld God. This experience would now be given to the nation as a whole. But entrance to the temple or the tabernacle courtyard was limited to Israelites. No Gentiles could come in. It was limited to this holy nation, this kingdom of priests whom God had chosen to be his treasured possession. Moving inward to the center of the courtyard, you would come to the tabernacle proper, to the tent itself. And this was a place where there were more restrictions. While Israelites could enter the gate, only the priests were allowed to enter the tabernacle itself. The tabernacle would have been about 45 feet long and about 15 feet wide and 15 feet tall. So if you were standing next to the tabernacle complex, you couldn't really see over the tent and inside, but you could see the top of the tabernacle sort of peeking out over the top. Everyone knew that what was in the center was really God. It was a place for his dwelling. It would have been a visual assurance to the people who camped around the tabernacle that God is here and he is dwelling with us. Inside the tabernacle, there were two rooms. The first room where you entered into from the front 
was called the holy place. It contained the table, which had the bread of the presence. We'll talk about all of these different implements in the furniture next week, if you're curious. So it contained this table. It also contained the lampstand. And it also contained an altar for incense that was perpetually burning, symbolizing prayers that went into the throne room of God. And then as you continued on through the holy place, you came to a curtain, a veil. And beyond that veil was an inner room known as the most holy place, sometimes called the holy of holies. This room was a perfect cube. It was 15 feet long, 15 feet wide. And remember, the tent is 15 feet tall. And this was the place where the Ark of the Covenant would be. This was the place where God would manifest his presence. And access to this room was even more restricted. Only the high priest could enter into the most holy place. And he could only enter in there once a year. Only on the Day of Atonement. After specific ceremonies had been performed. And again, this most holy place, this inner sanctuary was separated from the rest of the tabernacle by this large, thick curtain, the veil. Look in chapter 26, verse 31. We see the instructions for this. God tells Moses, And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang on it four pillars, or hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there, within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. All throughout this tabernacle complex, we see this theme of holiness and specifically separation. There's the outer perimeter which separates the rest of the camp from the sanctuary. There is the tabernacle structure itself which separates the courtyard from the place where only the priests can go. And then you have the veil, this curtain that separates the most holy place where only the high priest can enter from the holy place where the regular priests and Levites would perform their duties. And this word is what jumped out to me studying this in verse 33, that this veil separates for them the holy place from the most holy. Remember, God is holy, and this requires separation. And the tabernacle, even in the way it's constructed, the way it's built, communicated this at every level, that what is unholy must be separated from what is holy. Even what is less holy is to be separated from what is more holy, holiness is about separation. And this is the place where God would meet with them. And it was made holy by his presence. Exodus chapter 29, verse 43, says that what makes this place so holy is not the special materials. It's not even the rituals that the people performed in obedience to God. What made this tent, what made this structure, what made this place holy was the presence of God. Exodus 29, 43, says there in this place, I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. It is the indwelling presence of God that makes this place holy. And it is therefore the indwelling presence of God that requires separation from those who are not holy. All this emphasis on barriers, the perimeter, the tabernacle, with its multi-layered coverings, the veil separating one room from another... 
There's layer upon layer of separation. And when we think about this separation, we think about the structure of the tabernacle, I want you to consider, first of all, that this is grace. This is actually an expression of God's grace to these people. He has made it possible for his holy presence to be in their midst. He's made, it, he's made provision for them so that he can dwell in their midst. This would have been a vast improvement on their previous experience. Even with all of this separation, even with the restrictions, they got to experience God dwelling in their midst. This separation also was a gracious provision for their protection. This was for their own good. It would have been dangerous for them to experience the unmediated, unveiled presence of a holy God. So while we see all of these barriers, while we see all these restrictions, while we see the importance of separation, consider this is still a measure of God's grace for these people. But secondly, the fact remains, and the tabernacle teaches us this about the holiness of God, that sinful man is separated from God's holiness. Yes, God has drawn near to the people of Israel, but they cannot go directly into his presence. They cannot go, most of them, into the tabernacle. And even those who are priests cannot go into the most holy place. Even the high priest, the one who was able to go, cannot go 364 days out of the year. So God has drawn near to them. But the tabernacle teaches us that the holiness of God requires separation from sinful man. There's still limits. There's still barriers. There's still separation. What do we make of this separation? I want to just make three observations this morning on the tabernacle, observations that are going to take us elsewhere in Scripture that will show us how this tent, with its separations, with its structure, with its pattern, how it actually fits into the larger plan of God because the tabernacle teaches us not only about sort of the, the attribute of God that he is holy, but it also tells us something about God's plan, his intentions for his creation. So three observations. The first is this. Number one, the structure of the temple has a historical pattern, a historical pattern. There's something in the tabernacle that points us backwards to something that has happened already. And the tabernacle actually carries with it echoes of Eden. It tells us something about paradise lost. If you were to read through these six chapters in Exodus 25 through 31, you will find that it can be divided up. If you're the kind of person who studies literature and, and studies the way that literary devices can sort of give structure and order to, to longer texts, you'll find that there's seven sections in these six chapters. And each one begins with this phrase, that God said to Moses. You'll find that seven different times. God said to Moses, then you'll find a bunch of instructions. God said to Moses, seven different instructions. And there's an echo here of the creation account. Remember back in Genesis 1? God said, let there be, and there was. We see an echo of this. And amazingly, the seventh section here in Exodus, which would correspond to the seventh day of the creation week, actually is a reminder of the Sabbath. If you flip over to chapter 31, you can see this in verses 12 through 17. And if you're just reading through this, you might wonder, wait a second, God already explained the Sabbath to them earlier. He already laid it out in the Ten Commandments. He already gave them specific rules and statutes. So why are we talking about the Sabbath again? Well, consider here, we've just had six 
God said statements that show us the work that's supposed to be done to build this place. And then in the seventh, the Lord said to Moses statement tells us about the Sabbath. And it reminds us, reminds us about what God did in resting in his work in creation. It says in verse 15, six days work shall be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath. A Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. And he tells them in verse 17 that this is to be a sign, a sign forever between me and the people of Israel, that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So why Sabbath instructions in the middle of tabernacle construction details? Why is it divided up into these seven God-said statements? I think this points us back to the creation account. The construction of the tabernacle points us back to the beginning. Even the way in which God's instructions are organized hints to us that God is up to something here. He's doing something specific. He is rebuilding, recreating reclaiming and restoring something that had been lost in the fall. There's other clues about this as well. The tabernacle has a gate that faces east. We see this in chapter 27, verse 13. Corresponds to the Garden of Eden, the entrance to which faced to the east. Just like the garden had a tree of life in its midst, so the holy place has a lampstand that's in the form of a tree. If you look in chapter 25, verses 31 through 40, you see that this lampstand is described as having a stem and branches and flowers. The menorah, the lampstand for light, is a tree in the holy place. Just as God walked and talked with Adam and Eve in the garden, so here we find that this is the place where God will meet with his people and speak with them. Just like Adam was given a task to cultivate and keep and protect the garden, so the priests are commanded to keep and guard and serve in the tabernacle. There's all these connections that point us back to something that happened long before the tabernacle was built, something that was profoundly good, something that had been lost and damaged because of sin. We see with the construction of the tabernacle, even with all of these things being restored and recaptured in a sense, The unmediated presence of God is still off limits. The way is still barred, just like Eden. Remember in Genesis 3 that the cherubim were placed at that eastern entrance to the garden to keep anyone from coming in. And remember earlier as we looked at the instructions to make this sacred veil, to separate the holy place from the most holy place, chapter 26, verse 31 tells us they're to embroider these cherubim on the curtain itself as a reminder that just like Eden, that access into the most holy place is still barred. It's not allowed because it's not safe for sinful man to walk beyond the curtain and to be in the presence of God. So the tabernacle teaches us something about paradise lost. And while God's grace is at work restoring these blessings and drawing his people near and making it possible to be in their midst, there's still a necessary barrier that remains. Sinful man is still separated from a holy God. But the structure not only has a historical pattern that points us back, it also has a heavenly pattern. As we read through these chapters, great emphasis is given to the detail of the tabernacle. And it seems as we read this that Moses got a lot more than just verbal instructions. 
it appears that he saw blueprints. Look at Exodus 25, verse 9. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. God's going to show him what it should look like. Chapter 25, verse 40. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. And again, in chapter 26, verse 30. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. Chapter 27, verse 8. Referring to the structure, it says, You shall make it hollow with boards as it has been shown you on the mountain. So shall it be made. I like pictures that come with the instructions. Sort of helps when you're building that IKEA furniture for your wife when you get a picture that shows you what it's supposed to look like. And it seems here that God was doing more than just giving Moses written details or verbal instructions. He was shown something. He saw something. Chapters 36 through 39 spell out how they did everything exactly according to God's instructions. In fact, if we get all the way to chapter 40, to the end of Exodus, it tells us seven different times, emphasizing perfection and completion, that they constructed the tabernacle as the Lord had commanded Moses. It mattered that they got it right. It mattered that the details corresponded to something that had been seen. Something that God had shown Moses. Why? Why make such a big deal about this? Why so much detail? I think we find the fascinating answer to this in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews. In addition to the simple importance of obedience and doing it because God said to, there was actually something special about this pattern. What Moses saw on the mountain, the pattern for the tabernacle, was real. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, says they, referring to tents and priests and sacrifices, this whole tabernacle system, says they serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Hebrews 10, verse 1, says that these things are a shadow of, of the good things to come. So the tabernacle echoes something historical. Yes, there's something of Eden that corresponds to the tabernacle, but there's also something about the tabernacle that points us to heaven. It points us to the heavenly temple, to the throne room of God. The tabernacle was to be modeled after the place in which God's glory dwelt. The earthly dwelling place was a shadow, a copy that corresponded to God's heavenly dwelling. And this is why it mattered that Moses gets the details right. Because this tabernacle is meant to be a microcosm of something bigger, something that is more real and more lasting. But when we think about this, that's, that can just be like, oh, that's cool, that's interesting, that's exciting. But that should tell us something that's actually very sobering. You see, our problem is bigger than just not getting back into Eden. Your problem and my problem is bigger than just the fact that I can't go into a specific room in a tent, or I can't go into the inner sanctuary of the temple that would be constructed later. Our problem is that we are unfit to be in the presence of the holy God in his temple, his throne room. 
The God that Isaiah and John saw, who is holy, 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 must be separated from sin, which means he must be separate from us. So while you may feel as you read through these chapters, well, this tabernacle has nothing to do with me, consider that this is a reflection, a microcosm, a shadow and a copy of the place where your maker dwells. The place where his holiness blazes with indescribable glory today, right now, at this exact moment. The place where he is being worshipped now by the heavenly angels and the saints who have gone on before us. But here's the good news. The problem of our separation from God has been solved. In order to be in his presence, we must be made holy And the way must be open. That's the two things we need. We need to be made holy, and the way has to be opened to us. And this is exactly what Jesus came to do, to make us holy and to open the way to God. Going back to Hebrews chapter 9, it says this in verse 11, that when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, That is not of this creation, not just a physical tabernacle, not a temple in Jerusalem, something greater than that. Hebrews tells us that he entered once for all into the holy places, to the throne room of God, to the place where his holiness is manifested. And Jesus did this not by the means of blood, of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The problem that you and I have, the sin that makes us unholy and makes us unfit to enter into God's presence, Jesus entered into the eternal temple of God by virtue of his own blood to secure for you and me an eternal redemption. Hebrews 9.24 tells us that Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus goes there for us to do this for us, to reconcile us to God, to redeem us, to cleanse us. And the tabernacle is a picture of this heavenly reality. It gives us something that's physical and tangible to show us what it is that Jesus comes to do. What the high priests would do symbolically in the tabernacle, Jesus did once and for all in the heavenly temple. He entered into the holy place of heaven beyond the curtain to open the way to God for us and to make us holy. Say, how did he do this? How did he make us holy? How did he open the way? How did God, through his son, remove the separation and remove the barrier that keeps us from him? He did it through the cross, through the shedding of his blood. In the gospel accounts, we find this fascinating detail that when Jesus Christ died, when his sacrificial work on the cross was complete, something profound happened in the temple. The temple was a a later permanent structure that was based on the tabernacle that we're looking at this morning. Matthew 27.50 says this, 
that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, Matthew says, look at this. Pay attention to this. Get this. Get what happened next. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Mark tells us the same thing. Mark 15, 37. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Luke 23, 44. In Luke's account, he tells us it was now about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, why do the gospel authors tell us this? Why do they include this detail? Why are they so careful to make sure that we notice this thing that happened? What does it mean? We have to see that this is a miracle. It's a divine miracle. The historian Josephus writes that this curtain that hung in the temple was 60 feet high, twice as tall as this ceiling in this room. 60 feet high and that it was about four inches thick. And it tore in two, not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom, which means that this is nothing short of a work of God. It's a miracle. And it's a miracle with meaning. It is a divine declaration, a stunning symbolic announcement to the world that because of the work of Jesus Christ, because his blood has been shed, because the requirements have been met, The barrier that has always existed between sinful man and holy God has now been removed. The way that has previous to this point always been closed has now been open. And it is open not just to the high priest, but to all. And it is open not just one day a year on the Day of Atonement. It is now open every day. Because Jesus has made the final atonement. It is open to all who place their faith in Christ, to all who have their sins atoned for, for all who have been made holy. Jesus now holds open the curtain for us and beckons us to draw near and come in. Friends, this is why Jesus died. Jesus did not just die as a martyr for the truth. He did not just die to express some sort of sentimental love for us. Jesus did not even just die to set an example for us of what radical sacrifice looks like. No, Jesus died to open the way to God. Many of you know who John Newton is, the former slave trader. He wrote the song Amazing Grace, but he wrote a lot of other good songs too. And he wrote this song that's titled, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. I've I've quoted it here before and I'd like to again. Newton writes, let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. This is what Jesus came to do. To open the way and bring us to God. You see, Jesus answers the demands of God's holiness. And Jesus cleanses us by his blood. And he makes us fit to enter into the presence of God. And this is why we don't go today to a tabernacle or a temple to worship. We go to Jesus to worship. The true tabernacle. 
because he is the way in to the presence of God. He is the way, the truth, and the life, as it says in John 14, 6. He is the door that we enter through. So we go to Jesus to meet with God. Jesus has removed the separation, and so we go to him. So the tabernacle is a historical pattern that echoes Eden. It's also a heavenly pattern. It gives us a copy of truer heavenly things and foreshadows the work that Christ will one day do. But finally, a third observation about this pattern. Number three, the tabernacle structure is also a hopeful pattern. So it's a historical pattern, a heavenly pattern, but it's also a hopeful pattern because it points us to the future and gives us a preview of what is to come. We talked about this a little bit last week, that the tabernacle points us to future glory, to the return of Christ and the renewal of the creation, the making of a new heaven and a new earth where God will dwell with man. We see this in Revelation chapter 21. You can turn there and see this at the very end of the story. John sees a vision of the final step of God's plan, and he sees specifically something he calls the new Jerusalem, this heavenly city that is coming down. He says in verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So there's this amazing vision that the dwelling place of God will be with man. But there's some differences in the new heaven and new earth in the way that God dwells with man. In the Old Testament, God dwelled with his people in the tabernacle or the temple. Today in the church age, he dwells with us through his spirit who is alive in us today. But we're going to dwell with him in a different sense one day in the new heaven and the new earth. I want you to look at verse 16 because John tells us something about this heavenly city. Verse 16, he says that the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. The heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, is a perfect cube. And there's only one other perfect cube that we find in the scriptures. And it is the inner sanctuary, the most holy place that we find in the tabernacle. What this tells us is that the whole thing, the whole city, heaven itself where we will dwell forever, the whole thing is the temple. In fact, Revelation 21 verse 22 tells us that as John looks at this city, he doesn't see a temple. He says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. We don't need a place to go meet with God because God is there and we meet with him directly. And the whole thing has become the temple. There's no more need for separation. Temples, tabernacles separate what is common and unholy from what is sacred and holy on the inside. But there's no more separation needed in the new heaven and the new earth. Verse 27 tells us nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's no more need for separation because sin has been done away with. 
And everyone who dwells there has been made perfectly holy. So there's no more division. There's no more separation between the sacred and the profane. The whole thing is holy. And so we don't go to a temple or a tabernacle because we live in the sanctuary. So the tabernacle is meant to foreshadow, get this, our eternal destiny. That God is working to bring about the full restoration of what was lost. And one day, all separation will be removed and we will gaze upon him. And behold the splendor of his holiness with no veil, with no separation. We'll live there forever with God. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, if you turn the page, nearing the end of this beautiful story of Scripture and the amazing truths it reveals, after sort of painting this incredible climactic scene of all things made new and God dwelling with his people, us living in his sanctuary, it says this in verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Very simple takeaway, Christians, for us today. So I want to encourage you to set your hope on the return of Christ. To appreciate what God has done throughout history to see this pattern, to see the work of Jesus Christ and and to see what our ultimate destiny is because of him and to join in with the spirit, to join in with the bride, with with the saints who've gone before us in heaven today and to long for and to call for and pray for the return of Christ. Yes, Jesus, come back and do this. That's where we want to be. That's what we're looking forward to. Set your hope today on the return of Christ and what he will do at his coming. And say, come, come, Lord Jesus. As those today who have heard, as John says, let those who hear say, come. And to those of you who may still today be hanging back, perhaps you're hanging back from God, keeping a safe distance. Maybe it's because of fear, because of unbelief. Maybe maybe it's because of your shame. Maybe it's because of pride and unwillingness to give something up. Listen, the veil has been torn open. The way is open. Will you come? Will you come to Jesus Christ and receive what only he can give you? Will you come today and receive this gift, this benefit that can only come through Jesus Christ? There's no other gates. There's no other entrance. It's Christ or nothing. It's Jesus or be an outsider for eternity. What will you do? Are you thirsty today? Are you empty? Are you longing to be filled? Are you longing for life that is real? Then come, John writes, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Come to Christ. Salvation is offered to you today in Jesus' name. He has opened the way. He's torn the veil. So come. Lord Jesus, as we consider your incredible work in history,
the sacrifice that you made so that we could be brought near. We thank you. We rejoice today in the incredible reality that something has been accomplished and the separation, the barrier that keeps us from you has been removed. It's not by our doing. It's a divine miracle. It's a work of grace. And it all is centered on the cross. So we give you praise and glory today, Father, for what you've done through your Son. And we pray that those who are thirsty, those who are in need of living water, pray that they would come. And Lord Jesus, we look forward to your return. Those of us who know you, who have tasted of this water, we have experienced the life eternal that you give. We can't wait for that day in which we will behold your face. And we'll sing the song that we've sang so many times in this life, the same song that the angels in heaven sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come. Holy is the Lamb whose blood was shed to bring us near. We can't wait for that day. Amen.